0: This is the gospel according to St. Luke. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests and he said to him rise go on your way your faith has made you well this is the gospel of our lord thanks be to god amen amen you all can have a seat it's really great to have you with us for worship this morning and um I don't know how many of you are familiar with this tradition or the habits um, therein, but one of our habits as Anglicans is to preach from this very old um, preaching plan, preaching and teaching and Bible reading plan called the lectionary. There's a Sunday lectionary, and then there's a daily lectionary for reading your Bible just at home. Um, and then there's the lectionary that we, we preach and read from here on Sundays. Uh, and every now and then, the texts that are chosen... Uh, seem to have a common thread that sort of runs between them, binding and tying them together. Sometimes, um, if there's a thread, it's less obvious <laughs> uh, to me anyway uh, and to people. And so it's a stretch to assume that they're always connected, but sometimes the connection feels um, on the surface and therefore worthy of, of noting, paying attention to. Like somebody had to sit down somewhere, presumably under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and figure out um, on a day like today, on a Sunday, when God's people are gathered, and they're going to be reading bits of the Bible, which bits of the Bible should they read in order to hear maybe what God might be saying to them? Um, so there's an, an inspiration, I think, even in the lectionary. Something that I think we're all gathered and maybe meant to hear by God, which is firstly, I think, a cool thing to note. Um, if you're here, that the Lord has something that he wants to say to us, you know, through these really, really old texts. That like don't have anything to do with each other necessarily on the surface, um, but I think there's a common thread, something that's really important. Uh, namely, this: that in uh, each of these texts, with the exception of Second Timothy, which is just like a proclamation text, it's a like remember Jesus Christ uh, raised from the dead. Uh, what a beautiful thing! And I'll just tell you before I, because I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I should say this about Second Timothy, about about that passage in particular. On my um on my hard days. That's the verse that rings in my, in my head and my heart. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Because on my hard days, when I feel down or particularly sad or whatever, um, I'm probably the farthest in my mind and imagination from that fact, from that thought, from remembering Jesus. So it's a powerful text on its own. Um, but we're gonna put, kind of put it over here. The other three that we read have something to do, all of them, about, um, God drawing in um, insiders and outsiders across lines of difference and division in order to create what I'm going to call um, a new kind of kinship. Uh, we could say community, you could say family, or any number of words that you could use. But um, I think in all of them, that's what we see God doing in one way or another. Um, overtly, on their surface, they have something to do, at least a couple of them, with healing, outright healing, physical healing. You've got the story from Second um, Kings. Naaman gets healed of his leprosy. And of course, then in the New Testament, the Gospel reading, Jesus is healing lepers. And so you could just say, okay, well, that's what they have in common is physical healing. But I actually think that the kind of healing that the three texts share, from Jeremiah, Second Kings, and the Gospel, has to do with a, a different kind of healing. Yes, the physical healing matters. But there is a redemptive and relational, like communal healing that's happening in these texts. And I wonder... As myself, someone who's like come to church today and lives in 2000 or 2000, 2022, which always sounds nuts to say that that's the year. I mean, I don't know if you grew up like I did um, in the 80s and 90s watching like sci-fi movies in which like 2030 was just this, like wild year that nobody could imagine. And here we are, it's 2022. And we're asking questions constantly. I'm talking to people about what it means to be a community of faith. What is the church? What is, why? What good does it do? What does it mean to belong to a community of faith? Why would anybody even bother? And so I wonder, particularly in light of the moment that we find ourselves in culturally, if texts like these don't have something really important to say, profound to say to us about what it means to belong, with the kind of healing God might want to do through groups of people, through communities of people. But first we probably need to see just at least on the surface, make sure, because if you're like me, you're probably sitting there going, oh, what was that Old Testament text? <laughs> Which one was it? What do we talk about? What did Jesus do? So let's revisit the text just so that we're clear on like what actually happens in them. The first one that we read was from uh, Jeremiah. It's that really powerful passage. One of a, a couple that um, we know from Jeremiah, the other being, of course, I know the plans that I have for you, you know which we all got on our graduation cards. Uh, and then that was like our, our note from Jeremiah. And then there's this one. "I Pray for the welfare of the city because in its blessing, in its welfare, you'll find your own. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful text. I love the book of Jeremiah. I wish we had more time to talk about Jeremiah, the, his prophecy, and the whole situation. But here's the part that you need to know. When Jeremiah says those words, um, he's speaking into exile, a, a moment of exile, talking to people who have been exiled from their homeland the Babylonians have come, they've wrecked Jerusalem, taken people captive, taken them back to Babylon. So he's speaking to people who, like in Psalm 137, are by the rivers of Babylon. Do you remember the rest of the Psalm? By the rivers of Babylon, we did what? We sat down and we wept. for Zion, people who are not just homesick, but lost, wrecked. And so um, he's talking to people uh, who have just not only experienced exile, but have now been taken captive. And he's saying to them, while they're in Babylon, they're to do what? Make a home. Build houses. Plant gardens. Have families. In other words, flourish. Make a life here. Make a home here. Pray for this city. Pray for Babylon. So the whole like pray for your enemies and love them. When Jesus speaks that in the New Testament, while a radical notion, on the one hand, he's speaking very much out of his Jewish roots. He's a continuation of a really beautiful story and the heart of God. Because that's in this sentiment as well, in Jeremiah's own sentiment. He's saying, um, bless your enemies, pray for them, love them, make a home here. You can't go back to Jerusalem. Of course, Babylon wasn't home. It wouldn't be permanently. They would spend 70 years, though in babylon and so while we're here in our exile feeling not great about how we got here and why we're here make a home and flourish which isn't just to say like you know do good so that like babylon can thrive as a city because we want babylon to be better really what he's saying is you need to flourish so that the babylonians around you can flourish which is to say, build a new kind of kinship between yourselves and the Babylonians. Do something, live in a kind of way that would no longer see yourselves primarily as exiles and them primarily as captors. But invite God to live into your life and to move into it, live in such a way that those lines of division. The lines that sin has created, that a fallen and broken world have created to put you over here and them over there, even if it's their own sin that's complicit in it, live in such a way that those lines no longer hold the same kind of power. The dividing walls that exist between you. The New Testament language is dividing walls of, do you remember? Hostility. How do we tear down dividing walls of hostility? According to Jeremiah, live. Make a home, have neighbors, build community, a new kind of kinship. But that was gonna take, I mean, a big act of grace, humility, faith. Hate the Babylonians if you're in exile in Babylon. Babylon was hell. Jeremiah might as well have said, make your home build houses, plant gardens, and hell and see what God might do. What a call. What an impossible ask. And yet they did. They did powerfully. History tells us some of, as a result, our most prestigious Jewish schools of thought, theological schools, yeshivas, came out of Babylon, this part of the world, because they decided, at least some of them, to take the prophet at his word. Those who were clean and those who were unclean, those who were Jew and those who were Gentile, because of this act of grace, those lines became more blurry, less important. A new kind of kinship. Second Kings 5 is also a similar, I think, story. Um, story about an Israelite slave girl in the beginning. So the story, of course, is about Naaman and Elisha, but it all starts with an Israelite slave girl who's been taken captive by the Aramaeans. King of Aram starts out, he's worried about his chief commander, who's Naaman, because he has leprosy, he's sick. And this slave girl has been taken captive by Naaman's family, and she knows he's sick. And in an act of, like, just remarkable generosity and kindness, she says to her mistress, You know, I know someone who could make him well. He should go see Elisha the prophet. Um, Now, we don't have a lot of time to do contextual work here, but just leave it to say, um, a guy like Naaman doesn't go easily to a guy like Elisha for healing or for anything that he needs. He's got one of Elisha's people captive and as a slave in his own house. An Aramaean doesn't ask a Jew for anything, especially not healing. And yet, in an act of like profound humility, he goes. Now, he's only willing to go so far. He gets there, Elisha comes out to greet him and to at least be willing to extend healing to him. All of this is hard, it's like the thing that the text is saying without saying it is these acts, these seemingly small steps towards each other across lines of division and difference are all moving in a really powerful direction. Elisha of course ends up telling Naaman how to be made well and he ends up getting over his own pride and his own ego enough to actually lower himself down into the water and be baptized into forgiveness and peace and come out a new person and be made well. Here's the thing that gets me though about this story is that when Naaman comes up out of the water, you know the healing that matters most to God is not that he's no longer leprous because God doesn't actually care that much about our leprosy and you know what I mean when I say that. Lepers were not outsiders to God ever. Does he care about their physical hurt and comfort? Of course he does. But what matters to God is that Naaman came up out of that water A healed man, yes physically, but also to some degree relationally because I promise you he never saw Elisha as a Jew again. Who was Elisha to him now? His healer. and that way, a friend. A new kind of kinship got created between Elisha, between Naaman and everybody there because also for Elisha on the other side of it, he saw God heal the Aramaeans. And he saw the Aramean humble himself enough to come to God for healing. And so between those two people now, this new kind of kinship, a new kind of community exists that is not based on things like how rich you are or how rich you're not, how clean you are, or how clean you're not, we're using Old Testament speak, how brown you are or how brown you're not, how white you are, or how white you're not. how cool you are or how cool you're not. None of those things matter. Once you see yourself as someone, you define yourself as someone who has been loved by God enough to be seen for who you are, who you really are. And once someone else, another human being, sees you as a person also beloved by God, just for being who you are that, that what is more healing and transformative than that what is more powerful and redemptive than that that person saw me not as employed or unemployed have you ever sat with somebody for longer than like a half hour and found it incredibly refreshing when your job didn't come up When you could sit and talk with someone, just another person, and not have to talk about what you do for a living, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong. Sorry, I'm getting angry. I'm saying there's anything wrong with asking people what we do. I am saying I'm suspicious of a culture that increasingly would define me by what I do. Would define me by my place based on absolutely superficial and artificial lines of difference and division. I know firsthand how radically transformative, redemptive, and powerful it is to be seen as a person in spite of those things. And when you meet another person who's experienced that, and they welcome you in, something new and good is created when jesus in the new testament is walking along and these ten lepers spot jesus and they cry out to him from a distance you know why because they knew they couldn't get too close they weren't allowed close to people let alone a jewish rabbi it will never not rip me to shreds to imagine someone having to call out across a chasm that they thought was fixed between them and the God who created them. And being bold enough to cry out anyway. What a beautiful, brave, and powerful thing to do. And I think Jesus recognized it as such. And so they cry out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Believing themselves to be cursed, sick, broken, And Jesus says, in response, go to the priests. Guess what they didn't want Jesus to say? Go to the priests. You know why? Because they've been to the priests before. You know what the priests do? Keep a distance. Apparently not much. Because they've come to Jesus expecting him to be an alternative. Because those Jews over there, the priests over there, they don't care about us. They're holy, we're not. They're clean, we're unclean. They don't have anything to do with us. And Jesus says, go, make your way toward them. And in the going, they're healed. In their faith to take steps towards people, they assumed to be one thing. God heals them. Only one of them, a Samaritan, guess who was the least likely, culturally speaking, to have been the most thankful or to have rushed back to his Jewish healer? A Samaritan. They were cultural enemies of the Jews. There was a lot of racial tens- tension between Jews and Samaritans. Ethnic tension. Cultural difference. And it's a Samaritan who goes back and thanks Jesus. Here's what I think happens in a moment like that the Samaritan, doesn't see himself or Jesus primarily in terms of their ethnic differences anymore. You know? Those lines of difference and division are gone. Why? Because healing has happened here. In spite of and across those differences and those divisions. We encounter God, and as a result, all that other stuff just doesn't matter all that much anymore. Because God was here, and He apparently loves you the same as me. And what a powerful thing that is. My aim, as your pastor, and as your sister in the Lord, is to prayerfully try to continually see myself primarily as a child who's loved by God and who's received a lot of grace. One, because it's true, and to, Secondly, because if I see myself primarily in those terms, that will move me toward you, toward other people. It will open up my hands for hospitality, for friendship, for kinship. If I see myself primarily in terms of the superficial things, rich or not rich, cool or not cool, accepted or not accepted, white, all the things that my culture would constantly remind me that I am. When I see myself and define myself primarily in those terms, guess what it does to me instinctively? I withdraw into my tribe, into other people who also see themselves in similar lines, who identify that way. Now the difference is what matters. I am this and you are not. So I will be over here and you can be over there. Here's why this matters. This is not a kumbaya sermon about how we all just need to like, you know, find the person who's not like you and be a Christian, love them. Here's what I'm saying to you. I think healing, the kind of healing that people really actually need, transformative, life-changing healing happens in communities of people. It's feeling and knowing that you've been welcomed in, grafted into a group of people. And I believe that because the Bible tells that story over and over and over again. Your salvation, as much as it matters for you personally, salvation has always been something that God did through groups of people, through the Jews, through the church. It's a communal endeavor. The feeling of being saved is being grafted back into a group of people to whom you belong so that all of a sudden a new kind of community and a new redemptive kind of kinship can exist. Can we make it our aim as a church to know that we have been people who have been seen and if you don't feel that way, you have been seen for who you are, not as the screw-up, not as the unemployed, not as the divorcee, not as the deconstructing Christian, none of those things ultimately are the most true about who you are. The most true thing about who you are is that you are loved by the God who created you. And you have received grace the same as me. Is the most true fact about who you are. I don't have to know you to know that that's true about who you are. And in addition to those things, you are wanted here. We will be, we will only be a redemptive community to the degree that we see ourselves as those kinds of people. Who know ourselves to be people who've received a lot of grace and are dearly loved, who feel grasped and drawn into something bigger than ourselves. Because then we'll reach out and draw other people into it. Otherwise, we will spend the rest of our life together, which probably won't be very long, defining ourselves against everybody else. what they are and we're not. They're this and we're this. The world had enough of that. The church is different a different kind of redemptive kinship here. So that means two things. Probably going to require some costly hospitality for us. You have people currently all around you who need to be invited to your table and welcomed into your home. I'm not talking about just an open door policy and knowing more people for the sake of knowing more people. There's nothing particularly Christian about that, by the way. Everybody likes knowing more people. There are all kinds of clubs for that. I'm talking about prayerfully opening up your home and your life to make room for somebody. And I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. I would ask for you to prayerfully ask the Lord that question in light of texts like these. Who's not at my table? Who should be? Who's not in my home? Who should be? And if my life doesn't make any margin for that, what does that mean about my life? And have I closed myself off to the kind of grace that God would like to extend to me so that I can extend it to other people? You know? You won me over with your love and hospitality. I am very proud of the way you have loved each other and feel so honored to get to be a part of it. That will be the thing that heals us and the people who aren't yet here. And I don't even mean here. You know what I mean? Just in your life. So Lord, have mercy and help us, yeah. It's a hopeful word. We came to set the world to rights. That's the gospel. The gospel is the promise that he is a healer and a redeemer. And he wants to do it through you, your hands, your life, your table. Powerful. Spirit. Amen. Holy Spirit, we love you, Lord. We thank you, God, for the church. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, will you give us, Lord, the courage that we need to step out like Naaman did to trust you the way that the exiles did, to have the kind of grace that Elisha had, the kind of gratitude that the lepers had. Will so you work it in this Holy Spirit even now, Lord? So that we could be people, Lord, who are your hands and your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to pray now together through the prayers of the people. If you have your bulletin, this is our act of communal prayer, our chance to put before God our shared concerns.